0: Welcome to Nigerian American. My name is LD. This is my podcast. First, I want to say Happy New Year to everyone. And I also want to apologize for being off the grid for so long. Shout out to everyone who sent me a message asking for new episodes. I originally wanted to spend the holidays with my girls, and by my girls, I mean my wife and my daughters. The plan was to take a few weeks off towards the end of last year, but it got extended because, unfortunately, we lost my mother-in-law. My wife, who produces this podcast, had to travel, and I'm sure you can imagine the rest of it. We'd both like to use this opportunity to thank our friends and family for the support you know, through what was a really difficult time, and a special thank you to everyone who sent condolence messages. We love and appreciate you all. Again, sorry for the break. To kick off this episode, I want to say thanks again for listening to this podcast. I know that there are a million things that you can do with half an hour of your life, but you choose to spend it with me every episode, and I'm grateful This year I'm going to do many more drama episodes, seeing that many of my listeners enjoy those, but I still feel the need to share some interesting thoughts. So, I hope you guys don't mind if we start the year off on a serious note. A few years ago, I read a book by Yuval Noah Harari titled Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. It is probably the book that I've recommended the most, of all the books I recommend to all my friends and associates. Yuval Noah Harari is a history professor at the Hebrew University at Jerusalem. His book, Sapiens, explores the history of the human species and the various phases of our evolution and how we became the most dominant species on the planet. In the book, Yuval argues that sapiens came to dominate the world because we are the only mammal that can cooperate flexibly in very large numbers. He argues that our ability to cooperate in large numbers arises from our unique capacity to believe in things that exist purely in our imagination. According to Yuval, all large-scale human cooperation systems, including money, religions, political structures, trade networks, and legal institutions, owe their emergence to the cognitive capacity of humans for fiction. Basically, all of our large-scale systems are imagined, and we're able to cooperate so well because we're able to convince large numbers of other humans to not only believe in the same fictions, but to act as players in the imagined system. I may use the words sapiens and humans interchangeably in this podcast. Know that I'm speaking of one and the same thing. An imagined system is basically one that exists purely in imagination. There may be physical things that support the system, But the idea and how the system works in itself are born out of human imagination and it requires a capacity for fiction in order to be adopted successfully think about money for example money is basically a storage medium for purchasing power each dollar naira euro yen bitcoins or whatever currency you choose is just something that enables you to acquire goods or services the actual paper that is used to transfer the value itself is not as valuable. We ascribe value to the piece of paper depending on what color it is or what numbers are printed on it. It is an imagined system of value exchange. It is only valuable because we all agree that it is. And why do we agree? Because we've been told so by other humans and it has been accepted as a means of value exchange. Our cognitive capacity for fiction is what allows us to believe in the concept of money a dollar bill for example has no value in itself you cannot eat it you can't wear it but we're all convinced for example that the green piece of paper can be worth five bananas as long as a lot of people agree to this purely imagined idea that green piece of paper really becomes worth five bananas that is why as a human you're confident enough to go to the supermarket Hand a worthless piece of green paper to a total stranger and get real physical bananas in return. Only humans function in this manner. There is no monkey or any other mammal for that matter that is willing to exchange bananas for a green piece of paper. And if you know one, then we probably need to start preparing for a real life planet of the apes. Here's another example of imagined systems of large scale human cooperation. Companies. What is a company exactly? Companies are the most important players in our modern economy. And over the last few centuries, we have grown so used to them that we may not notice that they exist purely in our imagination. I mean, think about it a company is a legal entity that is made up of an association of people for a business purpose. A company could even be an association of other companies. It is recognized globally, it may outlive its founder, and is protected by law, oftentimes over the rights of even its founder and other humans. A company does not exist anywhere outside of the imagination of humans. You cannot teach the concept of companies to any other animal successfully. I keep comparing us to animals because I believe we're just another species on this planet. Our domination of the planet was only possible because of this unique ability that the human brain acquired over our evolution, and it continues to develop over time. The human brain today is at its best ever. That is not to suggest that we haven't had really smart people in the past. It is to say that, generally speaking, our brain's capacity is at its best today, and human brains will hopefully become way more powerful in the future. Yuval has a famous analogy. It is that, You can never convince a chimpanzee to give you a banana by promising him that after he dies, he will get limitless bananas in chimpanzee heaven. Only humans have the mental capacity for that. It is the most influential attribute we have acquired in our evolution and one that has facilitated our domination of the planet, including the conscious and subconscious control of other humans. I know many humans dislike the idea of this comparison, but one-on-one... At least biologically, humans are embarrassingly similar to chimpanzees. Chimpanzees share 96% of our DNA. There's very little separating our species. The biggest difference, besides obvious outer physical features, is in the way the human brain has developed over time. Our ability to outsmart all of the animals is how we manage to come out on top. And most of it was only possible because of our ability to create very large cooperation networks in which hundreds, thousands, or even millions of complete human strangers are able to work together towards common goals. Yuval states in his book that we cooperate so effectively with other humans and even with strangers because of our ability to believe in things like nations, money, human rights, even gods. None of these things exist in physical form outside of human imagination. They are all basically things that we've created to fill specific human needs. Things that we agree on in very large numbers that have enabled us to coordinate and cooperate effectively. Empirically speaking, there are no physical gods floating around in the universe, at least none that anyone can prove scientifically so far. There are no actual nations, just imaginary boundaries. There is no money, it's all imagined value ascribed to physical things we've created. Even human rights is an imaginary concept we came up with to protect one another, which is a great thing, and helps to satisfy an important human need, but none of these things actually exist except in the common imagination of human beings. I know people are going to want to jump on me for suggesting that maybe gods don't exist, but let me be very clear. I was brought up to believe in many things that I cannot prove many sometimes contradicting stories without supporting evidence. I just accept because I have been told so, and because many other people agree and accept those stories as well. My point is this, believing in gods and the supernatural is no different than believing in money, human rights, nations, insurance, or capitalism. I agree because everyone else does. It does not exist in my physical reality. It is purely in my imagination. What I'm saying here is that gods do not exist in physical form. And if they do, I'm yet to see one that wasn't created by fellow humans. I won't argue about the existence or non-existence of a god or gods in this episode. All I'm saying is, I'm yet to come across any physical evidence of such presence. The concept of faith in modern religions is very similar if not identical, to all our other forms of large-scale cooperation systems. I hope you're still with me. Again, all our imagined systems are necessary to satisfy human needs. Our need for global trade is why a company is a useful concept. Our need for protection and equality is why we have human rights. Our need for protection from unpredictability is why we have insurance. Our need for personal purpose and spiritual fulfillment is why we have religion. You get my point. Now, for any large-scale system to work, there is the need for most, if not all, the participants to understand and agree with the workings of the system. Our ability to adapt to necessary changes while maintaining core elements of the original script is also unprecedented. This is how we successfully evolve all our systems over time. In Yuval's book, he divides human evolution into four stages. The first stage is the cognitive revolution. This is the time in our history when our brains developed to the point of imagination. This was when fiction was born, and we developed the ability to communicate ideas in an articulate manner. The second stage is the agricultural revolution. This is when we discovered large scale organization based upon our newly found ability to imagine and build systems that require participation of hundreds of thousands of other humans. This was when we began large-scale farming and cross-regional trade. The third stage is the unification of humankind, when we began the gradual consolidation of all imagined human systems, social, religious, and political, towards one global empire. This was when we recognized the potential of even more cooperative global systems and began the race towards globalization. The fourth stage is the scientific revolution, the emergence of objective science. This is the era of modern science when developments in mathematics, physics, astronomy, biology, and chemistry transformed the views of society about nature. All the stages of human evolution as described by Yuval have one thing in common. They represent the various stages of human development and our use of imagination to build and improve upon our imagined systems. Of course, there will be disputes. Of course, there will be difference in ideas. Of course, there will be varying views on many topics and many systems. But most humans on the planet agree with the most popular global systems. And whoever doesn't also has his or her equally imagined systems that they prefer now there is a special ingredient that is crucial for the success of imagined systems that ingredient is trust because it exists purely in imagination the participants of the concepts or systems have to have faith or confidence in the desired goal of the concept or system in order for it to work It is what guarantees the continued participation of the humans at a large scale. If trust decreases, systems begin to break down and may eventually collapse. The trust in the dollar is why we all have confidence that if you have more of these green pieces of paper, you can acquire the things that you desire. If for some reason the dollar stops being accepted for the things you wish to acquire, it returns to being a worthless piece of green paper. Let's not even talk about the fact that the dollar is fast moving away from being a piece of paper, but a digital and more imaginary store value. In this episode, I want to highlight the value of trust in human systems. Hopefully, by the end of the episode, you may begin to make more sense of all of the systems around you and how they work. And why trust is so important that sometimes we do things that seem to defy common sense or logic in order to protect that trust. The reality of what I'm about to explain to you is quite complex. I'm going to attempt to explain it using basic examples, and hopefully I don't oversimplify it. Think of the concept of an ATM, for example. It's a banking system designed to dispense your cash to you whenever you need it. You trust that you can use one in any corner of the globe, and it is expected to dispense cash to you in available currencies. If you have the requested amount or value in your bank account, Irrespective of what country you open the bank account in and in what bank you made the deposit, you can make a withdrawal. Most of us today travel with little or no cash because we trust in ATMs and our credit cards. Now, imagine for a second that ATMs only work about 50% of the time. I bet you'll begin to consider carrying some cash around in case the ATM doesn't dispense as expected. You begin to lose trust in the concept of ATMs and may eventually stop using it altogether. Here's another example. You're driving and you get to a traffic light. If green, you proceed. If red, you stop. This is a system we have developed as humans to manage vehicular and pedestrian traffic. We teach it to children as soon as they can comprehend colors. It is expected that members of the society know and utilize traffic lights in order to avoid traffic accidents or the general chaos that exists without it. Traffic safety is heavily dependent upon predictability. The trust you have in the system of traffic lights is what gives you the courage to proceed at an intersection when the light is green for you and red for the other cars. The other cars could T-bone you if they were to keep driving as well, but you trust in the system so much and you risk your life every time you do it. We'll be back after a quick break. We'll be right back. If you drive up to an intersection, for example, and you have the green light, but you're not confident that those who the light has turned red for would stop for you to proceed, the purpose of the traffic lights is kind of defeated. Everyone needs to be able to trust in the obedience of everyone else in the traffic lights, for there to be a free and organized flow of traffic. Failure to do so results in chaos or even fatalities. If you live in countries where people have no regard for or don't trust in traffic lights as a traffic control measure, I'm sure you're familiar with the chaos or fatalities I speak of. At the risk of overstating it, I'll say again that all our large human cooperation systems need trust in order to function successfully large cooperation system architects operators and custodians they understand this and they do everything in their capacity to ensure that trust in the system remains otherwise the systems are likely to fail custodians of human systems figure out ways to ensure compliance once you become a part of the system and do a lot to facilitate the enforcement of rules and regulations in order for the system to remain trustworthy and efficient. For example, if you run a red light and you're caught, you'll get a ticket. You may pay a fine or even lose your license as a repeat offender. Everyone knows this and most people comply to avoid being punished. The fact that more than 99% of road users obey traffic lights is the reason why most people can trust those traffic lights at all. If people are free to do as they please and there's no repercussion for non-compliance, More and more people would run red lights and there will be more unnecessary road accidents and unmanageable traffic. Essentially, the traffic light is a system we have designed that continuously grants the right of passage to vehicular and pedestrian traffic from various directions, but it requires its users or participants to trust and comply. Otherwise, it won't function as it was designed to. All of our imagined systems also function in this manner. The trust element cannot be overemphasized. Now, think about the police force, another system. The number one purpose of the police is to curb crime and provide safety to humans. As explained earlier, and also the same in this case, people must trust in the ability of the police force to protect them in times of distress for the system of policing to be effective. For there to be trust in the police, whenever a citizen calls upon their local police for help, the police must respond as quickly as possible and protect such a citizen or their property. When there is a crime, suspects must be apprehended and convicted criminals brought to justice. When there is unrest, the police must step forward and enforce law and order. Failure to fulfill its mandate or to be perceived as the protector will result in a lack of trust and the system will be ineffective Or may eventually collapse. Data shows that communities in the world with the least trust in their local police systems end up having the most crimes. It's simple. People don't trust the police to protect them and criminals trust that the police may not stop them from committing crimes. Custodians of police systems understand this and that is why they do everything they can to protect and maintain the trust in the police system. Unfortunately, Sometimes doing everything they can means going as far as deploying some dishonest practices. It's interesting, but when there are police errors of judgment that may result in public distrust in the police force, while it is important that people are told the truth, it is also very important for the police to protect its reputation in order to maintain public trust. There have been many instances where a trigger-happy cop accidentally kills an unarmed boy. Naturally, the citizens will be outraged, especially if they suspect that the kid was innocent or wrongfully killed by a police officer. The more often incidents like that occur, the less trust the citizens will have in the police force, leading custodians of police systems to sometimes put public trust over the truth. Hopefully this explains the defensive attitude of the police custodians whenever one of their own messes up. It makes sense to punish the police officer that messed up in order to seem fair, but the more police officers you punish, the less trust people will ultimately have in the police. So the likely reaction and often top priority of the police PR group is to maintain the trust of the citizens, which sometimes leads to putting blame on the young boy that was killed. It is very disturbing i know but you can almost bet on it that if there is no clear-cut evidence that the police was at fault they will almost always be protected at the expense of the citizens they swear to protect it's crazy right the thought of such practices is annoying but i'm sure you can also imagine the consequence if we are all left to distrust the police i'm not trying to justify anything I'm just giving an alternative perspective. Something to help you see a different perspective and to better understand these systems. Something that will hopefully help you not be so mad the next time you spot it. Something that can maybe help you sleep better at night. I I can't believe I'm even trying to make sense of it, but I hope you understand where I'm coming from. So here's another example. When a data breach occurs in a system that can result in loss of millions of personal data, there's always an urgent need to rebuild the trust of citizens in that system. Some of those efforts are dishonest. But I need you to understand that the custodians of such systems consider what is at stake to be bigger and of greater consequence than telling everyone the truth. When there's a data breach, the first thing you'll hear from the system custodians is, and I quote, We've identified the breach, there are ongoing investigations, and we're working tirelessly to ensure that this never happens again. End of quote. I don't care how many times a data breach occurs, the speech is usually along those lines. The truth is that data breaches happen every day, and they will continue to. But how do you get millions of people to continue to trust in a system that requires your personal and sensitive information? It's simple. You tell them that it will never happen again. Same applies to almost all government systems and all the working mechanisms of human societies. There really isn't much of a punchline to this episode. I just wanted to highlight an important aspect of human society how it works and why custodians may feel the need to protect the trust in their systems at all costs, even when the cost is sometimes the truth. I personally may not appreciate some of the protective practices of custodians of our societal systems, and I definitely do not condone doing the wrong thing to keep our essential cooperation networks intact, but I understand a whole lot better why they sometimes do And understanding why helps me sleep a little better at night. Again, not because I think it's okay, but because I'm aware of it. For now, I hope none of you end up as casualties. I hope this was valuable. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nigerian American. Please feel free to subscribe, leave comments, and share this podcast. You may also reach us by our email. Nigerian American Podcast at gmail.com. My name is LD.